week of May 2nd, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 539, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling-Reich. And in super-duper birthday land, I'm Michael Giltz. So tell me, Michael, when is your birthday? Because I actually do have it down as May 30th. May 2nd. The week of May 2nd, it was Sunday, yesterday, and when you did not send me a text showing you don't care about me, you're just using me for the podcast. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, It's the use Michael for the podcast day is what I had down there, but on May 30th, I had Michael Giltz's birthday. (laughs) Well, change it to May 2nd. It's it's, uh, Dos de Michael. Okay, Dos de Michael. (laughs) Okay, don't you mean Cinco de Michael? No. uh, Oh, yeah, because it's not Cinco. Yeah, that's true. It's not May 5th. That's (laughs) hence the dose. Okay. Uh, Your joke made way more sperling. Your joke made made more. I can't do numbers, okay? I just don't do numbers well. So it was my birthday on Sunday. I had a nice time. I went to an English pub in Birmingham, but Birmingham, Alabama, not Birmingham, England. But it is run by two guys from Liverpool called the anvil had a nice full english breakfast a lot of meat and that was fun and i did zoom chats with friends and phone calls and texts all day long so it was a it was a lot of fun but speaking of uh not english i saw a documentary on the big colombian star jay balvin uh it comes out this week it's called the boy from medellin and it's a doc looking at him in 2018 right before his biggest concert ever. He's having a concert, his first solo stadium concert, and it's being held in Medellin. And it's the week leading up to it. And there's political stuff going on because the country is in turmoil, as literally a million people take to the streets protesting the government. People are pushing Jay Balvin to take a stand. He has taken stands in the past on other stuff, but he feels ill-equipped. He doesn't know what to do, but he's also very forthcoming about dealing with depression. And it's all the cooker pressure and all the stuff going on leading up to this big, big concert, the biggest of his career. His manager is Scooter Braun. And I think the most interesting part of the movie, which is pretty good, especially if you're a Jay Balvin fan, is just the ecosystem around a massive superstar like that. I'm sure the tr- same is true for movies and TV people, but Jay Balvin has just a team of people, of course. He has an executive assistant, a personal assistant. He has, of course, a manager, Scooter Braun, and an assistant manager. He has, of course, a, a physical therapist. He has a doctor. He has a psychiatrist. He has a spiritual advisor. When he has parties at his home, it's basically all the people who work for him. You know, yeah, all you, these know you know, by the way, for those who don't know, Scooter Braun, Justin Bieber's manager, and, yeah. you know, yeah. Now, you know, I'm a little bit more open about dealing with depression. I'm incredibly depressed over the past week, and I can tell you why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, over at Celluloid Junkie, we received a press release from Fathom Events and they will be, uh, putting into movie theaters, Stand By Me. And they're doing this because it's the 35th anniversary <laughs> of Stand By Me, to which I said, wait, that, that movie's 35 years old. That would make me, wait, I, I had the one, um, plus five. Oh my God, I'm old. So yeah, I am, uh, ridiculously old apparently. Right. So The Boy from Medellin is pretty good if you like Jay Balvin. I also saw The Human Factor, which opens up this week. Uh, that's a documentary by director Jor Marie, uh, the director of The Gatekeepers. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Jor Marie, I think perhaps is how you say it. I'm working on that. But that's also about the Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations, this time seen from the perspective of the U.S. negotiating teams over the decades. So it's not necessarily the president and the secretary of state, but that team, which was often the same people through Carter and and Bush and Obama and Clinton and all that, and it's the ups and downs. It's, it's pretty interesting. 
you know, it's a slightly different take on stories you've probably heard before. There's some interesting stuff on it. Certainly not at the level of the gatekeepers, but it's a uh, again like Balvin. If you're interested in that in in that topic, you might enjoy it. Now, this next sentence I'm going to say is one that anybody who knows me will not believe, and they probably shouldn't because it's not true. But I was going to say, well, I spent the whole weekend watching the NFL draft. <laughs> Did you? No. Okay. No. It did draw more people than the Oscars. The Oscars drew about 10 million people. The NFL draft, I think at its peak night, drew 12 million people. So sports is big, baby. And live events like the Oscars are big, but apparently sports is bigger. <laughs> yeah. Go but figure. We can cover sports and entertainment and the Oscars and documentaries and theater and social justice all in our podcast. What are we going to talk about this week? I think we talked about it all. No, just kidding. Just kidding. This week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are still actually reeling from the parades and the concerts and the public events surrounding, Michael, your birthday celebrations. (gasps) Yes, but apparently the entertainment news keeps on coming, whether you're out there celebrating or not. With May Day, China enters another week of strong movie going with 12 new films hitting theaters. (laughs) Hey, remember when we had 12 new films a week hitting theaters? (laughs) That's too many, actually. You know, I know that's I know. kind of a log jam. It's not. They're going to be winners and losers. They should space it out more. Well, more countries are opening up. Yet, of all people, Justin Bieber is proving more cautious. Go figure. Plus, good news for the Me Too movement in the United Kingdom and the weekly streaming numbers on Inside Baseball. We'll look at the music industry. The Grammys made a major revamp to its voting procedures. They said that Michael and I could pick everybody. Actually, yes. Oh, that yeah. would be great, actually. Yeah. Uh, China is cracking down on monopolies in music streaming. And John Mayer watched the Grammys and thought, hmm, interesting. <laughs> I think. Give me a bit, but give me an hour. I'll come back to you with a pitch. Uh, plus, Michael is determined. I swear he is determined to talk about Jim Steinman in obituaries. He just will not you, let go. You of took this. the words right out of my mouth. Oh, I get it. I get it, you know, but maybe we're running out of time. So, of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. And we have a link to ComScores in our show notes. Well, ComScores. ComScore. They have. They have. The top five movies around the world, worldwide, on their chart, publicly displayed. I'm not sure why they stop at five, because there are more movies that should be on this list, but they do include the top five. So good for them. I'm excited. It's because they are only allowed, those those distributors are saying, sure, yeah, you can post that. Uh, And also, they can say definitively, yes, we have all the box office from these particular films. So what they don't want to do is get into the habit of saying, well, we got most of the box office, we'll report actuals tomorrow. Uh, and then find out that the actuals are four times as much as they reported on Sunday. Well, that doesn't make any sense because if they're listing the second biggest film worldwide and they know it's not, you know, then it's not. For example, uh, on our list, we have Demon Slayer, the movie Mugen Train. That's third on our list. It's not on their list at all. And it beats the, the number three, four, and five. So, you know, I'm glad they're starting to chart up again. They need a lot more... Uh, uh, explanation of what's on here and not on here before they say here are the top five films of the week worldwide because that's certainly not the case but great and why would anybody block them why would the people behind demon slayer the movie mugen train not want to be on the list i don't understand i would, I would they're, say they're, they're in the north american demon, box office yeah you know, demon they're not slayer is not one of there. them 
Right. Demon Slayer, well, yes, definitely. but they're not they're not on the com score list of the top five movies. They made about twenty one million dollars worldwide last week, and they're not on the com score list. So hey, if you can explain it to us or you work at Comscore and want to come on the show, give us a call. We love you. Yes, you can. You can call us 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can also uh, write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. And we will have a listener email later in the show. Uh, we're also on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're also uh, on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. That's right. So we are looking at movies from around the world for the week of my birthday, May 2nd. Uh, That Sunday was my birthday. And the number one movie around the world is, of course, in China. It's My Love. It's a Chinese sort of romantic comedy looking at the first 15 years of marriage of two people who meet in college. It made $65 million on its opening week. This is a big week for movie going. It's May Day, of course, a major week calendar day for anybody who supports unions and people in labor, but especially the Communist Party. They embrace May Day. Very much so. And it's a big week to go to the movies. My Love is the number one film, but there were about 12 movies that opened up in China. There would usually, this is not a blackout period. There would usually be some Hollywood movies in the mix, but that didn't happen this week. There's one Canadian animated film, which I don't think made the top 10 that we have here. We've pulled the best info that we can. This is the best that we got. Number one is My Love at $65 million. Number two, I'm excited about this. It's Cliff Walkers. This is a new film from director Zhang Yimou, one of the great Chinese directors and apologist for the government if you listen to some people. He has a thriller set in the 1930s in Japanese-occupied territory in China. Uh, Cliff Walkers opened to $39 million. I look forward to seeing it. At number three is Demon Slayer, the movie Mugen Train or Infinity Train. That's playing here in North America, so it's definitely on the charts. We think it made about $21 million worldwide. It's at $470 million worldwide. So that's how we figure that out. We know where it was at worldwide last week. This week it's at $469 million to be exact. We separate last week's total from this one, and that leaves $21 million left over. We know it made a chunk of change in North America. It was the number one movie in the country this week. It made $6 million, but it's also playing in other countries, and we think the total is $21 million. So that's the number three movie around the world. Right below that, another Chinese film, Home Sweet Home. It feels a little bit like Parasite, the Korean flick. It's a car cash thriller, if that makes any sense. There's a terrible car crash. Uh, The family's son survives it. He's in the car with this driver. He thinks the driver might be responsible. They hit a school bus. Everybody died except the, the son and the driver of the car. And the dad hides the driver in their house. That's just the beginning of the film. Bad, crazy stuff starts to happen. That made $19 million on its opening week. That sounds like a movie of privilege and stuff that Hollywood might want to look at and think about remaking. Right below that at number five is Mortal Kombat, $17 million this week. It's at $67 million worldwide. Then there's a new film back in China. It's Once Upon a Time in Hong Kong. There are two movies with this name circulating. One has not come out yet. This is the other one. It's about cops and triads. They're gangsters. In the 1960s and 70s, it opened to about $14 million. Then at number seven is Godzilla versus Kong. It made $8 million this week. It's at about $415 million worldwide, which is a money loser if it only had theatrical to count on. However, HBO Max would argue, well, but we brought in subscribers, so they're really happy. It's, it's a win-win for everybody. Yes, but you could have made a lot more money if it was theatrically exclusive and things were back to normal. So it's half a win and half a win for everybody. 
Then Sister, back in China, it's a drama we've talked about before. It made another $5 million. The Unholy, a faith-based horror film, that made another $5 million. And two movies with a little bit of an asterisk. I'm not sure about Detective Conan, The Scarlet Bullet. I think that animated movie from Japan, it might even be anime, but I can't swear to that. I think it made about $4 million this week. And I think its total is $54 million worldwide. And The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, that played at Alamo Drafthouse, North America. And it got pretty substantial theatrical release in China, just like The Fellowship of the Ring did a few weeks ago. It made $3 million this week in China. I'm not sure if that's been added to the film's total, but I'm sure by next week it will be. So we'll have a worldwide total for that movie with the new grosses coming in from China when we do our box office for the week ending May 9th. But we did get some good news. That's the box office stuff. But there is good some good news in California. Are you excited? Disneyland reopened with limited capacity. Did you go? Uh, no, because if I wanted to go, I'd have to. Uh, first of all, I would have had to have made plans months ago for when they announced uh, they were reopening because tickets went like hotcakes or whatever you would say. Who wants to die? You get to die. You get to die. <laughs> well, no, and now if you want to go, uh, there are no tickets until the end of June. So. Two months from now, you get to go. If you plan today, you get to go at the end of June. And it's very limited capacity, and some of the rides aren't open. Like, you know, indoor rides pretty much aren't open. Uh, so, what other are rides there. are there? What do you mean indoor rides aren't open? Like, it's a uh, small world. And oh, so you can't go to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride? I don't know which rides are not open. Well, I, that, I, that's an indoor ride. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That's it. So, you're only going there to go like, Thunder Mountain Railroad or whatever Splash Mountain is now called, things like that. Yeah, and I'm just looking now. Uh, here are the closed Disneyland attractions. Nope. The Disneyland monorail, can't do that. Is, is it easier to name the ones that are open? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so you're not that excited. Would you ever go? Have you been to Disneyland? What was the last time you went? I do not remember, to be honest. Before, do, way before. Do not love your children. I, I do, but uh, they go without me now, which uh, I'm I'm fine with, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, Disneyland has reopened. France is reopening their movie theaters and other venues with 35% capacity. That will happen in the middle of the month. New York State, Governor Cuomo, uh, after making Mayor uh, Bloomberg, not Bloomberg, Mayor de Blasio sweat for a day, said, yeah, 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 yeah. New York City can start reopening May 19th with no capacity restrictions, no capacity restrictions for restaurants, businesses, every venue of every type. Now, we know Broadway is not going to open up to full capacity in mid-May. That's not reasonable. And they're thinking maybe September because they really can't open until they feel comfortable doing at least 75% capacity. Some shows can certainly be profitable at 75% capacity. Others really need that 100%. It's just, you know, they want to just feel like everybody can come in, sit in the seats, be comfortable, be happy, feel safe, and have a good time. But Justin Bieber said, I want everyone to have a good time. Come to my summer tour. We're going to have a summer tour in 2022. Good for you, and, Justin. And then he right? said, yeah, yeah, I know that I let you down. <laughs> you know who <laughs> let me down? Not AMC Network TV head Josh Sapin. His compensation fell this year, a year where a lot of companies saw their revenue collapse, employees be fired or laid off for months at a time. His compensation dropped $9 million from $20 million to $11 million. Similarly, the CEO of Discover, David Zaslov, he took an $8 million pay cut. Good for him. He went down from $45 million to $37 million. 
I pilloried the people who got a pay raise or kept their salary the same. I should pat on the head the people who took a pay cut, even if it's modest. But you know what? $37 million, $11 million, that's still a lifetime king's ransom for most people. So publicly traded companies, you really shouldn't even be making that much money. But at least you did right here. No? Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's not only the... uh I mean, more people were watching TV, so it's not like AMC lost a lot of money. But it, you know, the reality yeah, but, is that the, yeah. they're getting fewer subscribers. You know, carriage fees are dropping because people are cutting the cord. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everybody's got stuff to deal with. Uh, the U.S., China. Oh, we're looking at the Chinese box office and some movies like uh, Tiger Robbers. I'm not sure where that that's on the Chinese chart. That made three or four million dollars, but I, I wasn't. Sh- yeah, I should have grabbed that and didn't include that in our list because I wasn't sure about that. Apparently, the Chinese animated film Race Time that that didn't register at all. But Tiger Robbers did make a few million dollars. It sounds like fun, like the other movie I mentioned. Tiger Robbers is about four guys who, or four or five people who use their skills to rob a bank. Um, It made $5 million on its opening week, so that was good for them. And uh, their their skills, however, are not like safe cracking and scaling walls. Their skills include public speaking. (laughs) So somehow one of them starts giving a public speech and distracts everybody. And I don't know, it's a silly comedy. It sounded funny. Four white collar workers robbing a bank. It sounds offbeat and amusing. Uh, I was sort of interested in it. I enjoyed the trailer and it made $5 million on its opening week. But it's another flick that sounds ripe for remake potential. So that's something to keep an eye on. But China had a good weekend at the box office. However, they did, they're did they getting ready to report their first population decline in five decades. Similarly, the U.S. population is growing at its slowest rate in 70 years. So it's still growing, but at the slowest rate, which means a good argument for still encouraging immigration because those people are good to pay into the system and support Social Security, and they're good for the economy. You don't want a grain, small, shrinking population because then you end up with a moribund economy. So China and the U.S. are looking at population issues down the road or you know, coming to terms right now, but still they are the number one and number two movie market around the world. You know, you keep talking about, uh, you know, having to remake these movies. You know, sometimes the even even teenagers are going to see movies that that uh, are in their original form with with subtitles and all. My oh, my absolutely. daughter, my daughter went to see uh, Demon Slayer over the weekend in Japanese with with Hi. subtitles. Good, yeah, very and, cool. And, and I said, well, aren't you going to watch the 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 tv the show that it's based on and she said uh oh yeah i'm gonna start this week so she started and then i said oh did you start you know like two days later I said did you start that tv I'm show? done done yeah oh yeah exactly but no <laughs> she she said uh yes i did i said oh, well what's it about and she starts telling me and like half an hour later she's still going i said man <laughs> it, it, it sounds like a lot is going on in that series she said series that was just the first episode <laughs> I was like, "What? <laughs> Are you kidding me?" <laughs> it, it'll be good for when she takes her SATs. She can absorb information quickly. <laughs> well, that's cool. Did she, did she like the movie? Oh yeah, she loved it. I was like, I, oh, you know, cool. don't tell me what it's about because if 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 just like half an hour was was like you know ten minutes of a TV show, I don't want you to tell me what an hour and a half movie is about. You said, hold it, Scheherazade. I don't have time for this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Losing another chance to bond with your dollar. No, we can't go to Disneyland. No, I don't want you to share with me. Man, what kind of dad are you? The kind that's like, hey, get off of my lawn. Oh, you live here? Okay, come come on. That's right. Well, the cranky old white men are not in charge anymore. That's clear. And under social justice, we have some good news. SAG-AFTRA set up 
a sexual harassment reporting site. Given the stories of the last week or two with Scott Rudin, I think they should also include bullying in that. But that's a good step. They want to make it easier for people to report sexual harassment. They will keep the names confidential. You don't necessarily have to take action. SAG-AFTRA is not an investigative body, but they want to give you support and they want to know if you had a problem with a director, guess what? If five other people on the last five projects report problems with that director, suddenly you've got a really big pattern that they can look at and ring alarm bells. So there's a lot of good reasons why they want to do this. That's not their only purpose. They want to provide support and help you and make sure you get the help you need and any accountability that is possible if you're willing to go forward with that. But just recording the data on people and making sure if you've got a problem with this company or this producer or this actor or this director, you'll start to see that pattern once people feel comfortable reporting sexual harassment. So good first step for them to do. They also did some stuff with intimacy coordinators, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, I'm not exactly sure. Like, I I guess... Yeah, you know they're they're creating right. standards for it or a certification. Right, right. I would it like to be, be certified. I, look, I'm yeah. going to go get certified in intimacy yeah, coordination. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's why you're not in charge. Oh, that's why you're not in charge anymore. Sorry, oh, old white brother. guy. No, they're creating <laughs> new standards and certifications for intimacy coordinators. This is a position that sort of self-created itself in the last few years. In the old days, you'd do a sex scene or whatever, and it's like, oh. You were dependent on the director and the people around you for creating a safe, positive environment. Now, there are these intimacy coordinators who, when you're going to do a sex scene or something with nudity, they work with the director and the actors to make sure everybody's comfortable. They detail, his hand is going to go here. Are you comfortable with this? What about that? Let's do that. So that everybody knows in advance and can choreograph it. And it's without interfering with the creative aspect of it. They're not telling the director what to do, but they're creating an environment where everyone feels comfortable speaking up clearly spelling out what's going to happen. Make sure there's so no unnecessary stuff going on. Gabrielle Cateris is the head of SAG-AFTRA, and she compared her experience on the TV series Beverly Hills 90210 with the reboot 90210 in recent years. She said on the original show, when there was like a top scene or scene in bed, there'd be all these people around you and people might be feeling your breasts and checking things and you just felt exposed and naked and taken advantage of, but she couldn't say something because she knew if she spoke up, she felt like, oh, she's a whiner. She's a complainer. She's, you know, she's just trying to create trouble. And she felt like she wasn't in a position to do that. Flash forward to 90210. And she was not even saying somebody did sexual misconduct. Right? She's just saying it was an uncomfortable, unwelcoming atmosphere where she felt taken advantage of and not her concerns put first as an actor who's about to be nude. Flash forward to 90210, you've got an intimacy coordinator. People are you much mean, more you aware mean the of these issues. 90210, the current. Well, well it's, it's stopped. It's over. But like the right. last few, few years, right, the reboot. And yeah. suddenly they were concerned. They spoke up. They made clear. They talked about it in advance. What's comfortable? Where do you want the bed sheet? And all that sort of stuff. Night and day, she said. So I can see a vision of my future just came. Hold on. Wait, it's coming. Yeah. It's, hold yeah. on. Yeah. And, and the award for best intimacy coordinator goes to? Well, first, let's get casting director. <laughs> Oh, okay, Let's yeah, be, all right, fine. And, and best stunts, which would be a good Oscar category. Best stunts would really help you honor movies like Fast and Furious that people love to go see. You want to, you know what? A tech award is not going to change the viewership levels, but at least when you can show those movies are in the mix and you're going to have the actors giving them out to stunt stunt people, stunt men and women, that's got to help. You know, Dwayne Diesel Johnson says, giving out an yeah. I, I don't need a stunt coordinator. I I, I do my, all my own driving. No, no. Yeah, no, that's that's Tom Cruise who would give an award to himself. 
Yes. Right. So stunt intimacy coordinators are here. They're here to stay. And now SAG-AFTRA has set up a certification system to say, okay, you've gone through this process. You've learned steps to take. You are certified as an official intimacy coordinator. So great step for them to take. Moving on, Harvey Weinstein may be extradited to L.A. by the end of the month unless Governor Cuomo intervenes. That would probably be politically uncomfortable for him to do. Marilyn He's not Man- going to. He, no. you know, he, I, I will say this. Uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein used to fly on private jets. He, I don't think this is going to be a private flight for him because <laughs> he's <laughs> definitely going to be on a jet soon. Marilyn Manson is going to court. He is being sued by an actor from Game of Thrones, Esme Bianco. She alleges sexual assault and sex trafficking. He, of course, denies it. And a big story from the UK. The BAFTA gave out a big award to an, a, a big actor, producer, screenwriter, and director, Noel Clark. He's a big name in the UK. He's not quite at Idris Elba worldwide level yet, but he is a very big player in the UK. They gave him a a wonderful award for outstanding British contribution to film. When they announced that award, they received a number of anonymous allegations that he had been behaving in sexual misconduct and harassment and bullying and things like that. They didn't know who the people were. They spoke to their lawyers. They didn't know what to do. They did everything they felt they could. They encouraged people to come forward with the... and within the 12 days or whatever that they had, they just did not act. Then when they gave the award to him anyway, the women went forward and they came public. The Guardian did a huge expose speaking to 20 women, at least nine of whom were on the record, on their names, talking about things that he has done, such as sexual harassment, unwanted touching or groping, sexually inappropriate behavior and comments on set, professional misconduct. Here's a big one. Taking and sharing sexually explicit pictures and videos without the women's consent. He got women to come to auditions and said, we're not taping it. It's just for nudity, just to make sure you're comfortable and can do it on the day. And he would get them to do nude auditions and he would secretly videotape them and then show them to other people. He did all of this between 2014 and 2019. Within one day, he went from having his lawyers deny everything except for one allegation by one woman where he said, yes, I said something inappropriate. And then I apologized. Eh, 24 hours later, he says he's getting professional help. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm surprised that you don't have another uh, kind of thing in, in here, another mm-hmm. news story that broke over the last week and was pretty big news. What's and that? You know what I'm referring to, especially since you I hope are you're not making our, fun of it. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no. I'm saying that that you are uh, our resident publishing expert, uh, our uh-huh. book publishing expert. And uh, do, you, I'm, do you know what I'm referring to now? You mean when the, I say the, that? the 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 rally Philip of people. Oh, Philip Roth. Oh, the, yes. I thought we covered that last week. I guess we didn't. Yes, no, the no, biographer, because it was just breaking. Oh, I thought that was last week. The biographer of Philip Roth, uh, Philip Roth, often discussed in, as being a severe misogynist and treating women like dirt and uh, a lifetime of, of complaints about him. Uh, his biographer did a biography of him, which was fairly acclaimed, though some people pointed out, wow, he really goes easy on the misogyny stuff. Turns out the biographer has an ugly history of of sexual misconduct and inappropriate behavior, going back to dealing with girls in middle school and high school uh, and grooming them so that as soon as they were 18, he could then hit on them. A number of women came forward to talk about this. His publisher acted very quickly. They have yanked the books from the shelves and said, we don't want anything to do with this. We don't want to be, we've, they've even yanked his previous book. So oh, uh, there are no, Cheever? Le- John Cheever? Uh, yeah, I believe so. There are no legal um, charges yet. But there are investigations ongoing. Uh, One woman says he did rape her. Uh, Whether any of that will happen, but he is already paying a price. When you have, again, this was six or eight women who came forward uh, 
complaining about his behavior when they were students at a, at a boarding school or something or a prep school. Uh, when you have six or eight people coming forward, when you have 20 women coming forward about Noel Clark, this is not, you know, unfounded when he said, she said, this is, she said, she said, she said, she said, yeah. Well, people okay. So a couple of things. One, we're talking about Blake Bailey. It right. was two women. Uh, no, however, it was not two women. It was not well, two women. Well, let it me was finish. absolutely more than two women. Absolutely uh, it, not true. More was, than two women have come forward. So let me finish. So it was two women that came forward and said, here's who I am. Here's, here's my name. Right. Here's the incident, uh, one of whom uh, was his student, uh, which is bad enough at a at a middle school, which is a public middle school. And uh, what wound up happening is there was a group in a Facebook group, a private right. Facebook group in right. the, that was of of his former students that were. And that's where all of a sudden people were like, yeah, he said some really creepy things to me. Like, right. so it was kind of like, wow, was he grooming us? Like, like, Suddenly were a lot we of going to be the next? Forward. Yeah, right. this not, brings not us back. That, this brings not, us back to the SAG-AFTRA reporting of sexual harassment. Right. When people come forward and when they feel a safe space where they can report it, suddenly you realize you're not alone. And there's this person who has a, that is doing this. You, you can have one priest ruin the lives of hundreds of people. You can have one producer, one director destroy a lot of lives and careers with their behavior. And when people report it and talk to each other and aren't afraid to speak up and be taken and know they'll be taken seriously suddenly you realize oh wow we've got a cluster here this is some serious stuff so uh, i appreciate you pointing that out so yeah no well, well, let me ask you, you, you what, what did you two things one what happens to those books now so if i went out and bought this book it's a first can, edition they don't print. take it back they're not taking they don't take it, it back. back no but but does it become more valuable 20 years from now when there's like hardly anybody you know oh it's a first edition from norton oh you know there were only you know so it was, many of it, them was it was pretty it was a pretty big run for its first uh, printing first edition so it's not going to be 000. that wild yeah, yeah that's a lot that's not you know you get a first edition of harry potter where they only printed you know two thousand copies then you're talking something but you know, fifty thousand copies. If it wasn't notorious at the time, fifty years later it would start to be valuable because most of them would be damaged or destroyed or forgotten about, and then they can start to be worth something depending on what the deal is. But no, this is an opportunity for you to make money. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, you know, I think when something like that happens, people do look at it as well. If they're not going to print any more of them, then I may as well race out and buy it because then you know. Now that said. When I started to mention this story, you said, oh, I thought you were talking about what story did you think I was talking about? Uh, Simon & Schuster has signed a deal with Vice President Mike Pence. They're paying him several million dollars to write two books, the first of which is a biography, even though Mike Pence is known for decades for lying and abusive, racist, and, and, and anti-gay comments and, and lying to the American people as vice president and as governor again and again and again. Well, before so, as a talk you, show radio host, remember right, so, when he was, yeah. Right, so you want, you want diverse voices in your publishing industry. That doesn't mean you should print, you should pub, agree to publish someone you know has repeatedly and aggressively lied. That's not someone you should do business with. And a lot of employees were making that point. Simon & Schuster is holding firm. Noel Clark, just to be clear, Big, big guy. He has a big hit TV show called Bulletproof. His co-star spoke out and said they are supporting the women. Its fourth season is suddenly on hold. His production company has made about 10 films happen so far. He sits or has sat on the board of BAFTA's very important film committee. He's a mentor at ITV where he was in the midst of a miniseries, a four-night miniseries, was climaxing on Friday as all this broke. They said, we are yanking that final episode from the air. So four episodes, four hours, the climax, they said, we're not airing it on the air and having ads with it. However, if you want to watch the final episode, because obviously you've watched the first three, 
It's available online with no advertising for a limited time. I thought that was a pretty responsible thing to do. Uh, he's he's he, D, the CW has pulled that from streaming. He plays DC Martin King, Martin Luther King. Uh, that's a name. He's been on Doctor Who. He is a big deal. He is a big, big deal. This is akin to Scott Rudin. This is not someone in the twilight of their career paying a price. These women took a big risk coming forward for someone who is very much coming into his prime. Uh, and he says now, though he does not admit any criminal wrongdoing, he recognizes that he has done behavior that has hurt people and he is getting professional help. Well, we try and help you every week understand, uh, you know, the streaming charts. No, that's where I was headed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The streaming charts, we should be clear every week. They are including Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Hulu, and Netflix. Those are the only ones that are officially allowing Nielsen to monitor them to a degree and try and figure out, or Nielsen feels they have enough access that they can do it on their own and provide some credible numbers for what are the most popular franchises in streaming. We do our own chart every week. Uh, It's for the end of March, the beginning of April. So now remember, I talked about Prince Philip. He hasn't died yet. He dies on April 11th or April 9th. So that's still, he dies on April 9th. That's right. So I'm predicting the crown will have a big surge in viewership. We'll find out in the next two weeks, whether I'm right from his death and the funeral, whether there will be a surge in interest in the crown. It's still in the top 10 in original series, but we have our combined chart. And then we have the charts provided from Nielsen for the top 10 original series, the top 10 acquired series, and the top 10 TV movies. Some highlights include that uh, every streamer for the first time in the originals chart has a show in the originals top 10. So Amazon, Disney, Hulu, and Netflix each have a show in the top 10 of original series. That's the first time it's done, and that shows how important it is to have original programming. Netflix has the regulars on top. Disney Plus has The Falcon and the Winter Soldier at number two. Hulu has Solar Opposites at number seven on that chart, and Amazon has Invincible at number 10. So they're all creating original shows, and they're all having success. So that's That's good to see, and you can check out all the information online. We've got our combined chart and the charts from Nielsen all over there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I know that uh, Ted Lasso, do you ever watch this show, Ted Lasso? I'm familiar with it. It was a big success. They have a season two coming. Yeah, I saw that the the coach for the Arizona, the coach, the manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks, I guess they have not been doing well of late and was asked, like, how do you talk to your players and and uh, how do you, you know, from day to day, they're playing every day and it's, it must be demoralizing. And he said, well, you know, I'm a big fan of Ted Lasso. And so, you know, be a goldfish, you know, you kind of have to forget and move on to the next day. And just sometimes in this sport, you have to have a, a very uh, small memory. You can't, you can't, you can't uh, keep those losses in your mind too long. Just like Ted Lasso, be a goldfish. <laughs> and I thought I that's pretty interesting that he's quoting Ted Lasso of all people. <laughs> I am a goldfish all the time. Hey, the, the, the big viewers for our lists and all those shows, first and 10, it's, it's sports buffs. That's, they got those for the guys. You know, they've yeah. got a lot of programming. Women are bigger watchers of television. People of color are bigger watchers of television than white men. When they want to reach white men outside of live sports, let's make a show with a sports theme. <laughs> yeah, it works. Well, I guess. It's time for Big Deal, Big Whoop, though, isn't it? Isn't that our, isn't that our segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense? What is our first story? Well, you know, I wasn't looking at my watch, but now that you've called my attention to it, yes, it is time for Big Deal or Big Whoop. Uh, Now, our first story, actually, come to think of it, is about sports, sports, 
and more sports. There because you go. Li- yeah, live events seem like one of the safest bets in TV, even if live events like the Oscars were way down in 2020. Warner Media agrees, by the way. It laid out $200 million for the rights to hockey games from the NHL for the next seven years. And where will those games be airing? Will they be on TBS? TNT? No, actually, they're going to be on TNT and HBO Max, by the way. That's that's where I'm headed with this. So big deal or big whoop? Well, I think it's a big whoop, right? Um, it's hockey. <laughs> that's why it's $200 million deal for seven years. That's, you know, $28 million a year or something. That's not a lot of money, is it? And it's only certain games. So it's it's not oh, like... Okay. Oh, they got a yeah. piece of them. Oh, I thought that yeah, was for all exactly. of them. I beg your pardon. Well, yeah, so you know what? But this is something we're seeing. Um, there's a lot of attention about the 500 cable channels you have and people complained. I don't want all those channels cause uh, I don't watch most of them. Well, guess what? A lot of them are going to disappear in the next few years. There's a major calling of that seventh and eighth tier of your cable channels. And they're saying we need to refocus on the biggies like TBS and TNT to balance out the massive spending on streamers like HBO max. You can tell the story about every streamer. It's the same thing that Peacock is doing. It's the same thing that you know, everybody balancing the desire not to abandon ad sales and all the money that you still make from those cable channels, but you're desperate to grow the streamer as much as possible and get people to pay you directly. It's not an easy balancing game, but they are realizing maybe we don't need that third iteration of the history channel. Maybe we don't need that fifth iteration of our sports channels because there isn't a lot of original programming on there. We can put it on our main channel, on our streamer, or on our premier cable channel so that TBS and TNT retain their power and keep pulling in those ad dollars while everything else original goes to Peacock and HBO Max and all the others. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole carriage fee issue as well. I want you to hold that thought, though, actually, because it's going to come up in just a moment when I explain to you how sharp my scissors are and that I found the cord leading into my house that brings us cable TV. So What? <laughs> That was a cord cutting reference. Anyway, oh, okay. Scissors are sharp, and I found the cord. I got it. I got it. Cable. Okay. Well, you know what? Last week we talked about Roku and YouTube. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Well, Roku and YouTube—they are in a death match. The very day Apple goes on trial for its App Store fees, the week Apple launched a new operating system that takes on Facebook's user tracking, we see Roku and Google. Yeah, yeah. I know it's it's called Alphabet now, but. But still, it's it's a dumb, confusing name. We still haven't figured out who's where and what. Anyway, Roku and Google are going at it over YouTube TV. Roku says YouTube is playing too many games with user data. YouTube says as if they couldn't come to terms. So Roku has yanked the YouTube TV app from its store. Roku customers who want to try it out are out of luck. For now, Roku is not blocking YouTube TV, so current customers may continue to use it. If the fight escalates, blocking YouTube TV from current users who have it may be the next step, and Michael will not be pleased. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it will be a big deal if they block YouTube TV. My goodness. Um, Yes, it's an argument and fight over user data. Everybody wants to be the gatekeeper. They want to hold as much information from them for themselves and not share it with others. But I was very concerned about YouTube TV and I've been complaining about YouTube TV and its user interface, how the DVR works, how the system works. Our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, says he uses Hulu TV and he thinks from my description, his is a little better, a little easier to work. However, he points out all this stuff changes like every week. 
HBO Max said in an earnings call, they are making improvements almost literally every week, certainly every month to the service, how it works, how they use it, how they present data. They are making refinements and improvements to it all the time. Most of them they don't mention because they're minor, but when you add it up, it makes a much better user experience. So they're messing with it all the time. And I have to say, after Aaron said that, looking at YouTube TV, I've had this frustration with the DVR and playback. It's super hard, especially with the awful remote from Apple, which I have in the living room. The Apple remote is horrible for going back and forth on a, on a recorded program. But when I'm doing that, sometimes there's no pop-up tile showing me where I'm at. And when I'm trying to go back and forth, you can't really do it. You can sort of slide forward and then it goes forward 18 minutes or whatever, and then it reloads and it starts again. Or you can randomly slide back. It's, it's awful. In the bedroom with the Roku remote, it's a little easier to go forward by 15 seconds or start it to power through and get right to the minute and second you want. But sometimes that going forward and back works easier in the living room. Suddenly it's working again. Now there's a tile. Show me where I am on the screen and I can see, okay, the commercials have ended. So every week, every day, my experience using Apple TV changes because they're still figuring out. It's a pretty new company. And that brings us to a letter to the editor from Phil Myers in Orange County, California. We really appreciate him writing in. I have to say it's a really bad letter. He agrees mostly with Sperling, and that makes it a bad letter in my book. But oh, I I'll didn't read remember. It. I don't remember. What, what was the, what, I can't remember what I said. So, by the way, he wrote, he wrote to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. So I will read John's Phil Meyer's letter and then let Sperling comment because he has his own issues with his DVR and television system. So he writes to Michael Sperling and Sperling Michael. <laughs> On episode 538, you talked about YouTube TV forcing you to record entire seasons of a particular program and complained about the practice. That would be me. Also, you mentioned that the on-demand versions of shows often force you to watch unskippable advertising because they would only give you the on-demand version rather than the DVR version whenever possible. Both are true, he says, and here's why. Contracts and user preference. The contracts issue gets complicated and has to do with programmatic advertising, carriage deals, and network agreements. Cutting to the chase, to get added to platforms such as Roku, Amazon, Samsung, Apple, etc., YouTube TV and other over-the-top services like Hulu TV are required to pay either a portion of its subscriber fee and or give up a portion of its advertising space. That means, obviously, as an aside, if you've promised advertising to them, you can't let people skip over it or they'll get very angry. Now, programmatic advertising, says Phil, is only made possible by the fact that it's on an OTT service in the first place, because you can never do that with traditional DVRs or linear programming. Meanwhile, you have networks only agreeing to be placed on these services if the on-demand ads are unskippable. Both the distribution platforms like Roku and the networks sell the programmatic ads at higher rates since they are targeted better. Therefore, as I say, as an aside, if I'm watching Kids Baking Championship, they might be putting more food ads and kid ads and food and kid-related ads together in what I'm watching. It's not random. It's programmatic, meaning they know I'm watching this cooking show and I'm probably more amenable to advertising for these products. Back to Phil. The whole DVR thing is because most people who use the DVR feature on over-the-top services only do so for a series, not one-off programs. So most interfaces default to entire seasons or series of a program. Add to that the contractual obligation that some networks insist be in place for the default cloud DVR feature is that 
you know, if you tape Downton Abbey, they say, no, 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 make them tape the entire season rather than an episode. This also partially has to do with advertising. It's annoying for those of us who only want one episode. When you read these contracts, as I have, between the lines, you can see that these networks realize their cable carriage fees will be eroding over the next decade and that the hardware manufacturers know they can't rely on hardware sales as their only source of revenue. Love the show. Now, that's a good comment. Keep up the good work. We'll try. Phil Myers in Orange County, California. Thanks for writing in, Phil, even though you agreed with Sperling to a degree when Sperling said, Michael, it's in their contracts. Uh, yeah, I thought, I, mm-hmm. I thought from all the webinars I've been attending that that whole programmatic advertising thing, I knew it had something to do with that, like that, that they say, well, okay, but I want some of your, like Roku, for instance, and Spectrum. So I guess that actually now would be a good time to talk about my own cord cutting, uh, which yes. I have not done, by the way. So uh, my TiVo DVR broke. Okay, it's about 12 years well, old. Did you lose and- a ton of stuff that you were hoping to watch someday? No, uh, not at oh. all. Uh, oh, so, okay. so uh, I mean, let's put it this way. I still haven't watched the end of Lost, okay? It's been 12 <laughs> years. <laughs> it's so, a sled. I, yeah, it's a sled. Uh, Luke really is his father, or Darth Vader really is his father. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, uh, so, so it kind of broke. And then so now I've been using the Roku to get... Uh, to the Spectrum app, which allows me to watch cable TV because the TiVo was my cable box. Every time I launched the Spectrum app, they warned me, hey, listen, do not delete this, this app because if you do, you will not be able to download it again because here at Roku, we basically banned them and there's this fight between Roku and Spectrum. Here's basically what the fight is about. Roku says, listen, we want some of the advertising space on the Spectrum app. So when you're watching NBC and NBC has five commercials, we want one of those commercials. And Spectrum is like, well, first of all, they're not even our commercials, okay? So we can't really give you that. And there are numerous, uh, you know, whether it's Amazon, Roku, Samsung, they all want to skim off some of the advertising time as, it, as is pointed out here. Well, okay, so needless to say, I've been using the, the Spectrum app to get to uh, to to my cable TV, what has this made me do? I've realized there are 500 channels on this this app. I watch like three. No, you watch more than that. Tops. Okay, let's say I watch ten. Okay, it's like CNN, Dodgers baseball, and the and that's it. Really, I don't. Maybe MSNBC. Sometimes I'll go to Fox News to go. Oh my God, they're saying what? Uh, but. Needless to say, I don't really watch that much television. And I'm like, I'm paying like $165 a month for this. What if I were to just pay $65 to YouTube or Hulu or whoever? I'd get uh-huh. the stuff that I really watch anyway. I saved 80 bucks off my, my cable and Wi-Fi bill, my TV and Wi-Fi bill, I should say, by switching from Spectrum Cable to YouTube TV and Spectrum Wi-Fi, which is my only option in terms of and Wi-Fi. here's the thing, and this is why Spectrum did what they did. They bought the rights for some ridiculous amount of money for the next 25 years for the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. It was like $8 billion. Needless to say- Why not just I, buy a team? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> for a lot uh, less. 
Well, that's exactly, by the way, that's exactly what Rupert Murdoch did when he was yep. launching Fox Sports. He bought the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yep. And when he was talking to Charlie Rose shortly after, he said, I did that because ESPN was launching regional sports networks. And I said, if they're going to do that, I need to have the most valuable sports networks. Who is that? Second market, Los Angeles, I'll buy the Dodgers. That's exactly what they did. That said, if I want to watch Dodgers baseball, the only way I can do it is through a package on Spectrum. So I can't cut the cable, even though I'd like to. Now, the Roku YouTube fight is that Roku is saying to YouTube, listen, uh, when people log in, you know who, they're, uh, who they are, how old they are, what they're, whether they're male or female, where they live. You have all these demographics. We want that information as well so that we can sell ads based on that demographic info. And YouTube is saying, yeah, no, you're basically the mall, okay? And we are basically Macy's, okay? You would never ask that for that information from Macy's if you were the mall operator. You're basically right. allowing people to enter the mall. Well, we happen to be a store in the mall. We're not giving you our user data. And thus, the Roku YouTube TV fight. Are you happy with your new system? Are you, are you, what are you going to oh, be doing? I, you know what? I actually need to go and get uh, a, I, I need to go get another, uh, I don't know, cable box, but I don't want to pay for a cable box. They're going to make me pay $7 a month for a cable box and they're forcing me to do that. That issue should be raised again. It is an issue that should be raised again. And so is the fact that people keep dying. What are we going to do about this, Sperling? Dying? What do you oh, mean I'm dying? Sorry. It's, it's not time for obituaries. It's time for inside baseball. <laughs> I'm like you went you went you went from like from the death of cable which yeah it is people like me are kind of going why do I pay for all these channels to uh you know but you you to, were always you were always the voice of reason saying yeah people think they don't want those channels but when a friend says oh I've got this great show on on you know TLC you're like oh yeah I don't have that on my bundle for my over the top service oh it's a great show on oh yeah I've never heard of that channel oh yeah it's on my cable channel but the, the problem was not that you had 500 channels at your beck and call. The problem was that they charged too much as a monopoly and provided terrible service. We would have yeah, been all for instance, fine. We would have been fine with, you know, $85 a month for five channels, but they wanted 85, you know, $130 for 500 channels. Well, I can pay 65 for, you know, over the top and get the 60 shows channels that really give me most of what I want. I'm okay. And I can't remember the chart I saw. I think it was for Comcast. They're making as much money now in broadband sales as they are in cable. Well, like yeah, is of a, course, because people need, because, because you have to have them for broad, you know, broadband, right. you know, what choice do you have? I have no choice. I have spectrum because there's literally no option that's feasible in my neighborhood. Well, yeah. Elon Musk can't come soon enough and neither can inside baseball. That's where we analyze some of the headlines. <laughs> Keep yeah. Going. Okay, fine. I'll tell you what inside baseball is about. It's where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. And we always explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And here's how they will affect you. If you are really a big fan of The weekend, here's the deal. He will never win a Grammy, ever. He will That's never, right. ever win a Grammy. Hey, hey, but just because he's not going to submit it. That's right. The, we've got a Grammy roundup about their secret nominating committees. We're going to talk about the antitrust movements in China against Tencent and their dominance of the music streaming world. We've got John Mayer getting ready to host his own TV show, and Spotify is raising prices. First, the Grammys. They are dumping after the, all the abuse and all the 
mishigash about who gets nominated and how and why they are dumping the nominating committees, which make the final decisions on all the big major categories. There will the, keep people from being influenced. The members of those committees were kept secret. But that also led to a lot of friends voting for friends and managers voting for clients and the feeling that anonymous collectives were making their own mercurial choices and the desire of most members and common sense be damned. So no more secretive groups of insiders making the final decisions on who gets nominated. It's going to be the voting body at large. And that group will be vetted better to make sure it's still actively creating music, which means Sperling's boy band days probably will not keep him qualified unless they get back together or score a hit. Come on, Sperling. Now, remember, why were the secret committees formed in the first place? Because the voters at large were missing obvious critical and commercial successes like The weekend. So um, don't think the Grammys will get smarter or better just because we dump these committees. But at least we won't have to blame some secret star chamber for the decision. We can just look at the thousands of members overall and go, you people are morons. <laughs> the committees will still be used for less visible categories like the liner notes. Now, The weekend responded. He said, whatever. <laughs> I'm still not yeah, submitting still my not. stuff. You're still corrupt. You're still a joke. And I'm not submitting my stuff to you. That's a problem because guess what? The number one song in the country is Save Your Tears with The Weeknd and Ariana Grande. He's bigger than the Grammys. Well, uh, my boy, boy band days are behind me. By the way, did you hear about this uh, this guy who who uh, is a boy band? He, not, not a boy band. Yeah, they were going to make a boy band. And he was in China, and they like put him on an island, and he no. kept ple- pleading with people. No, 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 no. He was like making, Vlad. No, he's a he's a Russian, and he's uh, yeah. I think really into fashion. And he was help. He was working with the company, putting on one of the many countless TV shows to create a new boy band. You know, they they have a competition, they winnow it down, you get your final five or six or eight people who are in the band. And he was working behind the scenes because he's you know whatever his skills were, I forget. But he was not looking to become a pop star. And then they ran, somebody backed out at the last second and like, hey, you should go on. He's totally, he's very cute. He's young. He's, he's you know, he's hip. He's cool. And he's like, uh, I'm Russian. And what, what? And they're like, no, you should do it. Just do it. Just, he's like, okay. And he looked at the thing. He didn't really look at the contract carefully. And then suddenly he signs up. And he gets in there and he starts winning week after week. He keeps staying in the run. He's like, oh, my God, I don't want to be here. So then fans start voting for him because he doesn't want to be there. Like, oh, you don't want to be there? Or that's an embarrassing choice? We'll vote for you even more. (laughs) So he's (laughs) he's suffering. He's going, please let me off the show. And they're like, yeah. So he just gained its own momentum. But happily, they backed off at the last minute before he became actually a member of the boy band and contractually obligated to go on. But he was like singing dirge like rap songs he's like i'm so happy i'm not here i wish i was somewhere else and they're like yay <laughs> so but he became genuinely popular people liked him he's cute and he's appealing but he also really didn't want to be on and people who could vote were like ha <laughs> it's like an american idol some seasons you would see people who could not sing and they were getting pushed through week to week by people who were like ha let's vote for him he sucks Truly, that was happening. So it's interesting. But yeah, that was kind of an amusing story. And he was so glad. He like traipsed off stage when he was released from the show. He's like, thank you for not making me a member of a boy band. That could be a a movie. (laughs) Yeah. Especially in China. I mean, he would have been a boy band in China. It was a Chinese show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But in any case, speaking Speaking of China. China, Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, the government is cracking down on corporations that dominate the entertainment marketplace. You know, Michael and I are glad whenever that happens. Of course, in this case, it's a the government in China that is kind of, you know, going after the company Tencent. But, you know, hey, you got to start somewhere. So why not in China? Maybe the U.S. will learn something. Who knows? For complicated reasons, the, the Communist Party is cracking down on Tencent, which absolutely 100% dominates the music streaming market in China. According to Reuters, Tencent is about to be fined $1.5 billion for anti-competitive practices. As if, you know, as if that wasn't really enough, the company owns three of the top streaming apps and will have to sell off two of them. So now I guess really they will only own one. Anyway, that is antitrust in action. Right. Imagine if one company owned Spotify uh, Apple Music and iHeartRadio or something. It was like, oh my gosh, one company owns all three of them. Not good. So that's a it's an important step. The reasons they're doing it are more complicated, but that's good to see. Another good thing. How about this? How what? about this? Uh-huh. What if one company yeah. owned Warner Brothers and Disney Fox <laughs> and Universal and Paramount and any other studio that you could name mm-hmm. and only they released movies in China. Because by the way, that's exactly what happens. Every movie gets distributed by the China Film Group. Right, right, right. Well, that's just the access to distribution. Right. The country is not a, a paradise of antitrust activity. That's why we yeah. say it's complicated. The reasons they are cracking down on Tencent. They don't want some company to become so powerful that it can challenge the interests of the government, nor do they want businessmen to get above their, you know, hey, we'll cut you down to size there, buddy. You're not in charge. <laughs> so that's why it's happening. It's not because they've suddenly seen the light. However, John Mayer has seen the light. Uh, the Grammy Awards received good reviews. Right, certainly better reviews than the Oscars, which was a disaster. One feature that both Sperling and I liked in particular was the opening segment, where four or five acts were sort of in a big warehouse space together. They were each set up here, 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 and there, and one act would play a song, and the others would be watching and jamming along and loving it. And then, then that act would play a song, and Billy Eilish would be nodding her head and be into it. And then the other act and so forth. And we thought it was really cool. It was modeled after the long-running UK music show Later with Jules Holland which literally for 30 years I've been going, why doesn't someone in the U.S. do that as well? And can I please be the host? Well, half of that came true. The format is coming to the U.S., but instead of me, it's the super tall John Mayer who is in talks to host that type of show for the streamer Paramount+. Plus. I think long overdue. It's a cool format, and he can play with you know, blues people. It's not just about pop music. You know, they have blues and rock and jazz and country. They have all sorts of genres in the UK. And I think they'll be looking to be just as diverse here. So that's going to be a cool show. And I, I read the headline, John Mayer to host talk show. And I thought, are you kidding? Like, that's the last thing he should do when he runs off his mouth. It, bad things happen. But if he's talking about music, he'll be okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think uh, a couple things. One, uh, he started all of a sudden doing these YouTube stories, and I guess one of the popular guitar tutorials that everybody does on YouTube is how to play John Mayer's Neon. It's it's notorious for being one of the most difficult guitar pieces to play, and mm-hmm. everybody thinks it's because of of John Mayer's you know the the length of his fingers on his left you know <laughs> that that he's able to like get to all these notes and and right. And, that's why I'm and, not a pianist. Exactly, I got yeah. tiny little hands, hobbit hands. I have. And so he said, look, guys, he did this like 60 second thing. He said, it's all about the thumb and forefinger on the right hand when you're or the 
yeah, the right hand, when you're doing uh, the strumming, you have to do it in a, in a rhythmic drumming strum. And he actually did this over the weekend and boy, it was like off the charts. And it was because, you know, all of a sudden, not only do you have people doing neon uh, by John Mayer, how to do, you know, tutorials of neon by John, you have John Mayer doing a tutorial of ne- neon. That's about <laughs> as meta as you can get. That's true. You know, John Mayer has sort of a spotty recording career. I have not seen him with the dead. He's been touring with them. I would love to have checked that out. But I'll tell you, he did two albums in the vein of sort of a, uh, oh, good Lord, what's it called? The Af- uh, the the Lost California vibe. Like a, uh, what's that? Laurel so- Canyon? Laurel, Laurel Canyon. Canyon. God bless yeah. you. Yeah. Born and Raised in Paradise Valley, two of the best albums he's ever done. I pray he does a third one. It has to at least be a trilogy, though he's moved on from that. But, you know, he's done some great music, and uh, he's pretty great live. So it'd be interesting to see him on that show. I think it'll work out. But uh, I, if you want to check out his albums, which are really, really good, Born and Raised in Paradise Valley, you can play them on Spotify. But depending on your plan, it might cost you a little bit more. Spotify is raising its prices, but don't worry. They're not raising the prices on me. I have a single player plan. You know, I pay 10 bucks a month and that hasn't bumped in ages. It needs to go up to $11 or 12. It's way overdue, but it hasn't. But they're going to raise prices for family plans and student plans in the US, the UK, and Europe. Do you have a Spotify family plan, Sperling? Or is it an Apple family plan? What do you have? I have a Spotify family plan, and here's what I would tell Spotify. Be very careful, because we all get it. It's like $16. It's like nothing. It's not a lot. Oh, it's 16 now? Yeah, it's really cheap. So it went from 14 to 16. Yeah, please. That's nothing. For for, for what, four of you? Four bucks a person a month? I pay 10. (laughs) Okay. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know. uh, It's not going up to 50. Believe me, it's, yeah. and it's de- a lot cheaper for you to get the family plan than an individual plan for everybody. They're not going to do well, that. Well, here, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Now, I know that people outside of uh, the U.S. don't have Sirius XM. It's satellite radio, okay? But all of these services, do whether you? it's Spotify. I do have Sirius XM, yes. I want access. I want to listen to Craig Ferguson. You can pay like an extra $2 a month and play it in your home. Do it and then give it to me so I, I want to hear Craig Ferguson. Have you listened to his radio show? I have didn't know he had a radio show. It's been on for years now after his talk show. He's on Sirius FM in the late afternoons, I believe. I want to know how it is. I love Craig Ferguson. Well, so here's the thing. I've had Sirius XM because, of course, when you're in the car and you want to listen to a baseball game, they had the rights to, for satellite radio, for MLB, NFL, you name it. And it was NFL was always the premium package, period. It was always the premium package. But Major League Baseball, this is how Sirius XM made their name. They had Major League Baseball radio. Right. So they, that was like one of their big claims to fame. That's they also kill, had Howard kill, Stern. Killer app. Oh, Howard, Stern and, Howard Stern and baseball games. That's a killer app. Absolutely. But here's the thing. Howard Stern cost more money, and they told you that up front. They said, look, we're paying the guy $500 billion. He's on the premium service. So if you want him and you want NFL, it costs us a lot of money. You have to pay for the premium service. Okay. You want to stream it in your home as well as in the car? premium service. Okay, I get that. But all of a sudden, and without warning, on opening day of this year's baseball season, they went, oh, by the way, all of the baseball channels, they're on the premium service too. Now, why would they do that? Here's why. Nobody is subscribing to SiriusXM. Their new subscriber rate is like a negative number. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Their churn is like everybody quitting. Right, exactly. Because you've got Spotify in your car and you can just plug it in. And for most people, that's plenty. I would never get Sirius FM. 
the only way, the only way for them to increase revenue as a public company is for them to start charging more money for the same product. That or is come the same up with something that, new that will bring in new subscribers. <laughs> right, exactly, which they have not done. Right. And so the that said, the only way that that Spotify in the US can make more money is charging more because they've they if they've reached a saturation level. Either people have it, all the people that are willing to pay for it are all the people that aren't going to pay for it aren't. And the only people they can get are either people that are subscribed to Apple Music already or some other service. Uh, or they can't, well, there's no place let's to go. Let's be clear. Spotify has 158 million paid subscribers worldwide. They have 366 Correct. million people using the service, which means at about uh, 200 million, 208 million of them are just listening to it with ads and less control. So they've got a lot of room to grow. You know, they've got a lot oh, of room. Monetarily, there's, yes. Yeah, there's 8 billion people in the world. There's room to grow. They're, they're going to be okay. But the business overall, music business worldwide, with publishing and streaming and live music, that's a $49 billion business in 2020, despite the fact that nobody could tour. So almost $50 billion business worldwide in streaming and publishing and live music. That number does not include physical sales Maybe because they just don't matter anymore. Maybe because they're a rounding error in terms of overall music business. But that did not mention physical sales. But it's a $50 billion business. And Spotify only has 150 million people worldwide who subscribe to their service, which means they still have room to grow in the U.S. There's more people to pull in on an individual service and family plans, which are very reasonably priced, I must say. Yeah. And, you know, I still have loads of DVDs, not DVD. Well, I still have loads of DVDs. I still have loads of CDs. You still buy CDs? Snap out of it. That's yeah, no, line, I like CDs. That's a line from Moonstruck. I, well, all right. Yes, I like CDs too. I have a couple hundred of them. I used to have thousands and I still have a solid library of 500 or whatever stored away somewhere. I'd love to have access to them, but I can't for personal reasons. But someday when I'm back in my own space, I will have my CDs out. I like them. I don't need to go to LPs. I got a lot of, I got 800, 1,000 CDs. They're great. They sound great. They're easy to play. They make you focus and pay attention. You're not doing a playlist or something. I love them. Yeah, it's really easy. You know who does the playlist for you? The artist. The artist <laughs> does the playlist. Exactly. It's like, it's like the weekend is in your home saying, now listen to this track. Now listen to this track. Now take a break. <laughs> you know, as a matter never, of fact, flip me over. <laughs> you know, well, heavens, be careful there. You know who never took a break? Olympia Dukakis. The Oscar winner Olympia Dukakis worked hard all her career. She died at the age of 89. Uh, she worked hard all her career, but she didn't have a lot of success. She worked steadily, but she was not a big name. She was a journeyman actor, not an actor that people were raving about and saying, oh my God, why isn't she a star? No, she was a regular workaday journeyman actor that certainly people appreciated. She continued to work. But she was not somebody people were scratching their heads and thinking, she's a genius. Why? Does it? But the right role at the right time can change your life. And, you know, 30 years ago in her 50s or whatever, she got a role in Moonstruck. She won the Oscar for that, and it made her a star forever. She had a great late career blossoming in film. Still Magnolias, The Cemetery Club, Look Who's Talking, Mr. Holland's Opus, the very good Sarah Pauly film Away From Her. That was great stuff. And then she had TV. Tales of the City Trilogy. She was a three-time Emmy nominee, including the second Tales of the City miniseries. That's a landmark TV work. And on Broadway, she appeared in the one-woman show Rose and Off-Broadway. I will always remember. You remember Olympia Dukakis, maybe from Tales of the City, where she played Mrs. Magical. That's a good series to watch, especially the first one, the first 
season or or miniseries. Uh, you remember her from Moonstruck, and she had a great role in that. And off-Broadway, I saw her in the Tennessee Williams play, The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore. If that name doesn't ring a bell, it's because it's one of the lesser Tennessee Williams Tennessee plays. Williams, yeah. doesn't get done very much for very good reasons. But by God, they wanted to do it. She's like, I'll be in Tennessee Williams. I want to star in a Tennessee Williams play. Now she's got the chance. It's Oscar and Emmy nominee Delimpy Dukakis in this little short run off Broadway. And by God, she did her best. She said, the milk train doesn't stop here anymore. <laughs> but it didn't help. <laughs> it's not a but good now, play. But- but now I have to say, you're the one who every week kind of finds the the obituaries for us to talk about. And every week I'm like, why are we talking about Johnny Crawford? I, I didn't watch The Rifleman. I didn't watch The Mickey Mouse Club. I have no idea who Johnny Crawford is. Really, really. Now, The Rifleman is a, a really good series that's in reruns all the time. You can catch it online, streaming somewhere or on TV channels. It was a, a, a launching pad for director Sam Peckinpah of The Wild Bunch and other movies. You who certainly know him. Sam Peckinpah? I'm kidding. I'm oh, kidding. Whoa. Oh, whoa. Oh, my Calm heart. Calm down there. My heart. I'm 55 <laughs> now. You can't make those kind of jokes. Don't do that to me. <laughs> Woo! So Johnny Crawford starred in the first season of the Mickey Mouse Club when he was nine years old. Then when the cast was cut in half, he was one of the half that got dumped. He said he would have done it for free. He told us, I'd do it for free. And his manager said, kid, you are doing it for free. They're not paying you. And they they weren't going to be paying you even if you came back for season two. Is that true? In their first season, they didn't get paid? Anyway, he said, I was a husband at nine. (laughs) But then along along came, you know, that's got to hurt. But he did some other roles. He was working regularly. And then he got The Rifleman, one of the first TV shows in television in the U.S. to show a single parent raising a child. In fact, it was a dad. And Crawford was the son of Chuck Connors, The Rifleman. It had gritty realism, thanks to Sam Peckinpah, who was deeply involved in the show early on before he parted ways because they were like, does it have to be so gritty? And he said, yes. Uh, and he He's had, like, you know what? More blood. More he had, blood. He had great <laughs> chemistry with Chuck Connors. They had a great chemistry and he also was a kind of a real cowboy he competed in junior rodeos and steer wrestling calf roping bronc riding bull riding all his life he was a member of the professional rodeo cowboys association and guess what acting was in his blood when johnny crawford got nominated for an emmy for his work on the rifleman in 1959 that same year his father was nominated for editing the bob cummings show and his brother was nominated for acting in an episode of playhouse 90 Three members of his family were up for Emmys. That's pretty cool. During the heyday of the Rifleman, he even signed a record deal and scored four top 30 hits, including the top 10 hit Cindy's Birthday. And then you might have heard of this group, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. They're at kind of an L.A. Uh, institution. Did the Nighthawks, ever- yes. Yeah. yeah. Did, did yeah, you ever see Nighthawks. it? It's like an old-fashioned big band type group. He sang with them in the 80s. He was their lead singer. He has a nice light tenor. And then in the 90s, he started his own band, his own vintage dance orchestra, and recorded a few albums. He was single most of his life. Ding, 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 ding. That would raise alarm bell. I go, uh-huh, really? Single? Really? Is that? But no, turns out. In you know 19- who else has been single for a long, long time? Hello, Mr. S- or I should say, Senator Lindsey Graham. <laughs> right, exactly. That would be the, 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 the bell that would go off. Except in 1990, he reconnected with his high school sweetheart, and they married in 1995. And we're happily married. And, you know, so that was very cool. Well, decades, you know, after his heyday, he bumped back into his high school sweetheart and they made a life together. And I should make a note here. Paul Peterson of the Donna Reed show. He's done a great career post his acting 
helping out child actors, making sure they're legally protected, making sure we do everything we can to make sure their money isn't squandered by their parents and other people. And he helped set up a GoFundMe account when Johnny Crawford was struck with Alzheimer's. So uh, I loved that show when I was a kid. I loved it's just strong word. I liked The Rifleman when I was a kid, and I thought he had a pretty interesting career. But are you familiar with Eli Broad, the L.A. philanthropist? He died at the age of 87. Did he loom large in L.A. for you? Uh, very funny that you should call him Eli Broad, and here's why. His name was originally spelled B-R-O-D, and he got so tired of people making fun of you know the fact that his name was Broad A, you know, you dumb Broad uh, kind of thing. And so he added the A and changed it to Broad. And so Eli Broad, if you lived in L.A. and did not know who he was, boy, oh boy, uh, I don't know how you lived in L.A. and didn't know who he was. He was very, very well known for his philanthropy especially from the 90s forward. Uh, he helped build Walt Disney Concert Hall. He helped build MoCA, MoCA, MoCA he, yeah. the Museum of Contemporary Art. He then had a falling out with MoCA, and he went over to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, gave them all this money for a new wing, and of course... The Los Angeles County where LACMA said, oh, we're going to get all of his art. He's going to you know, bequeath us all of his art. You know, it's going to be so great, all this modern art that he collects because he collected some major art. Thousands of pieces, yeah. And he said, you know what? Um, here's what I'm going to do. No, I'm going to go downtown on Grand Avenue right across from Walt Disney Concert Hall, right across the street from MoCA, the museum that I helped found, and I am going to build my own museum for art. And so now, of course, there's the Broad Museum. Now, if his name sounds familiar, it's because of Kaufman and Broad. They were huge in building homes that people could afford in the 1950s and 60s. He was a millionaire by the time he was 30. And, and then, a billionaire. He did, then he went into insurance and sold that company off for billions of dollars. Yeah, he became a big, big billionaire. He's absolutely, and did the LA Opera too, by the way, but he is a traitor. A traitor. Why is that? He was born in the Bronx. He's born oh, in yes. the Bronx and he's known true. for LA. How dare you, Eli Broad? Or well, Broad? he was born in the Bronx, but then raised in, in the Midwest. Yeah, so it was like, and, but I do like this. He wrote a New York Times op ed uh, late in life. And he said, You know what? I've spent all this money. He did all sorts of philanthropy, not just the arts. He said, All the philanthropy in the world will not compensate for the massive inequality in this country. Change must begin with its unfairest part, the tax code, so that everyone can work towards the American dream. The old ways aren't working, he said, end quote. So good for him to recognize that. It's great to do philanthropy, but that is no substitute for systemic change. You do the philanthropy to make sure you can make systemic change and don't have to do it in the future. Soup kitchens are great. No one should need to go to a soup kitchen. Well, he was he was very um like he did not give his money freely in terms of if he gave you money, expect to see him at the board meeting because <laughs> he was so he was much loved and much much kind of like fr he, he frustrated a number of yeah he was like oh you're not changing the education system fast enough thank you very much I'll take that billion dollars back <laughs> you know and so that was part of his you know he frustrated people because. He didn't just like give money to finish Walt Disney Concert Hall. He was in like on the board and he got all the what credit. Tile, what tiles are you using? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, Sperling, you have that, a lot of CDs, right? I'll bet yes, I do. you have the name Al Schmidt in many of, or some, or a lot of those CDs. Have you heard of him? Al oh, Schmidt. Oh, absolutely. I have. I have no idea what he <laughs> asked me these questions for. I don't know. He is the most honored engineer in Grammy history. He just died at the oh, age yeah, no, of Oh, yeah, then I definitely do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's right here. Hold on. Yeah. Do you I own, you do you own Steely Dan's Asia? No. Oh, it's one of the best albums. You should buy it. Toto 4? You're too embarrassed to say yes to that. Natalie Cole's no, Unforgettable? 
Diana Krall's The Look of Love. Uh, I think I do have that one. Yeah, there you go. He won 20 Grammys more than any other engineer in history. It, It was in his blood. As a kid, his uncle owned the first recording studio on the East Coast. Remember, he's 91 years old. Les Paul was also a mentor and a friend for life. From Duke Ellington, which was his first solo engineering job, to Diana Krall, he covered the waterfront. Uh, he won Grammys for Engineering Steely Dan's Asia, Toto 4, Natalie Cole's Unforgettable, all Album of the Year winners, Diana Krall's The Look of Love. Those are all peaks for those acts. Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, Ray Charles, Hack. Sam Cooke, Henry Mancini's Moon River. He's the first guy to win the Latin Grammy for Album of the Year, doing work with Luis Miguel, also having won the Grammy for Album of the Year. So he's the first person to have worked on both those and win a Grammy for Album of the Year and Latin Grammy Album of the Year. In 2019, he worked on two albums. He's 2019. He's 89 years old. He worked on the Mavericks album En Español one of my favorite albums of the year, and Trisha Yearwood's Sinatra tribute album, which is pretty cool and makes sense because he also worked on Frank Sinatra's two duets albums, two of the best-selling albums of his career. He did very little producing, but when he did, it counted. He did five albums for Jefferson Airplane and their spinoff Hot Tuna, and he did Neil Young's On the Beach and Jackson Brown's Late for the Sky, two defining albums of those artists. You know, when you work, see somebody's credits like that, an engineer, a producer, a, an editor and film, and you see that they're working on the best films by all these different acts. Brian Eno, the best, some of the best albums by Talking Heads and U2, some of the best music by David, but you realize, you know, it takes a team, man. There's a lot of people involved in doing this creative work, and he's a really cool guy. Well, I know you want to talk about Jim Steinman, for some reason, you just won't get off this guy. We talked about him last week, and now, like meatloaf, we have leftovers. That, that, that's right. You know, I, that's meatloaf is why I want to do this. You, we got a link in the show notes to meatloaf, spoke to Rolling Stone over two days, gave a really heartfelt, loving talk about his relationship with Jim Steinman. It's very fun. If you have any interest at all in meatloaf or this schlocky genius, Jim Steinman, check it out. Uh, it, it is, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I think if something's really fun and good, it's fun and good. I have no guilt over that. I like ice cream. I love Jim Steinman. I think Bad Out of Hell is a great, great album. I really, it's not like, oh, it's stupid, dumb fun. No, I think it's great. You know what? I well, like, you know, the thing about Jim Steinman is he literally would do anything for love. <laughs> he really would, but he wouldn't do that. And that's the problem. That's He's, true. He has died at 90, not 91. That's, that's him. He died at 73. We'll never know what that was. We'll never know. Yes. But yes, uh, it's cool guy. I've got a lot of notes about him and his music. Beyond Meatloaf, uh, he had a solo album. He did Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. Air Supplies, Making Love Out of Nothing at All. Barry Manilow's Read Him and Weep. Boys Zone, the biggest hit of their career, no matter what. Celine Dion, he was working on her big album, 1996, Falling Into You, which won Album of the Year. That's his only Grammy. She also did the song It's All Coming Back to Me Now by him. He did the Streets of Fire soundtrack. Uh, and I would do anything for love, but I wouldn't do that. Uh, Bad Out of Hell was on the UK charts for more than 10 years straight. Only Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and Fleetwood Mac's Rumors had longer stays on the UK charts. It was also on the US charts for dog's years. He began a musical theater. You can read all about it there. He did cool, cool stuff. He was a poor man's Phil Spector, uh, a, 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 an urban version of Bruce Springsteen. I don't know. He never met a song that couldn't be improved by guitars and an orchestra and a choir. And maybe two choirs. <laughs> it's like more, <laughs> more, more. I love him. And when I read through his career, I was like, oh, yeah, 
uh, you know, he always was working on this Peter Pan musical that became Bad Out of Hell, and he always wanted to do it proper. Oh, yeah, I was there on Broadway when Meatloaf did the entire Bad Out of Hell album. Yes, I was there off Broadway 20 years later when Steinman's got his show, Bad Out of the Hell, the musical off Broadway for like a week at City Center. Oh, yeah, when I went to that concert, I recognized the poster on the wall in that musical was from his solo album, Bad for Good, because I owned it on cassette when I was 14. I am a Jim Steinman nut, apparently. So I miss him. I love him. Sorry, I never got to interview him. It would have been great. He said that he kind of meatloaf said he really took it to heart when he got bad reviews. He really didn't like it. I'm like, he should have read mine. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. Well, you're nuts for still listening to us. (laughs) In any case, you can, uh, you know what? You can subscribe to us and not miss a single episode. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, the Google podcast store or app. Uh, Of course, uh, the Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can find us, rate and review us uh, in any one of those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do. As we've mentioned numerous times on this particular episode, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. All of that information, as well as all of the stories, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. You know, the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is not by us. It's by the indie rock group MGMT, and they can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's I'm still available to guest host Jeopardy.com. Actually, he is, although I think uh, who, who was doing it? I think Anderson Cooper, Anderson Cooper killed it yeah. the last two weeks. This week is I forget whom. There's, there's it was a, a movie star. Like, uh, I want to say it was uh, who was the guy in, in Donnie Darko? The Jake Gyllenhaal? Jake Gyllenhaal. I think it was Jake Gyllenhaal. Why could I not what? remember that name? Jake Gyllenhaal's not hosting Jeopardy, is he? It's, Maybe I'm wrong. It's Bill Whitaker. <laughs> so, oh, from of course. Oh, good old Bill. So, okay, yeah, so close. So close. It's yeah, Bill Whitaker, <laughs> then Mayim Bialik, then Savannah Guthrie. Those are the next three. Okay. Well, you know what? I can Jay never Jill get the... Hall is not doing it. <laughs> okay. I'm wrong. What can I say? You know what? Write to us. Tell me how wrong I am. Uh, in the meantime, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com for all of his entertainment coverage because it's aggregated there. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 